Hello guys, thanks for tuning in to the Not The Top 20 podcast. This is a Monday podcast, as it has been all season, but there's only a few games really to recap. We're going to be looking back as detailed as possible on the first legs of the playoff semi-finals in the Championship and in League One, and reviewing the, the well the ties from League Two, both uh, legs played, and we know who will be playing at Wembley. So stay tuned uh, throughout for a breakdown of the whole playoff picture in the EFL. George, uh, as first legs go, not loads and loads of goals, but I think in terms of setting up second legs, we've got to be pretty happy with, with, with how we're looking. Yeah, well, of the six games, uh, you've got one draw and then five games that were decided by one goal. So you couldn't really be better poised going into the second legs. Uh, I wouldn't say the games had you know too much... I mean, there was drama, I guess. I mean, we had some sendings off, uh, which maybe shouldn't have happened. We had a couple of non-sendings off that definitely should have happened. Um, but, I mean, I guess you always expect these playoff first legs to be quite cagey because there's so much at stake. I thought both the games that we watched on Saturday, that the two later games easily could have been goalless, except for two moments of, of absolute quality, which uh, which meant that Sunderland and Leeds won. But um, yeah, I think the second legs are always where the drama is going to really unfold. And that's OK, isn't it? Because we know that there, there's a second leg coming and we know that at the end of that, there'll be a victor. And, and actually, you know, this isn't basketball, is it? I'm, I'm happy for the first legs to be very cagey and, and for everything to be there to play for in the second leg, because you know that... Uh, you know, at the end of 90 minutes or 120 minutes plus pens, maybe you are going to have a winner. And, and so I, I'm fairly happy about that. You mentioned um, Saturday there. The two games in the evening were Derby Leeds and Sunderland Portsmouth, Villa West Brom early in the day. We're going to break down each game individually in a second. But it was a, a, a big day for us because it was three years to the day, 11th of May, since our first ever podcast. Now, I mean, a lot's happened in those three years. That first podcast is still available somewhere. And every now and again, I listen back to it to remind ourselves um, what's changed in that time. But um, it was it was a nice day as well, wasn't it? Because we managed to get some people to come and watch playoff football with us. And that was the first time we've done a meetup like that. And it was just a, a, an absolutely fantastic evening. Yeah, great to meet a lot of guys, put, put faces to, to Twitter handles and... Um... A, a, an alarming amount of Reading and Luton fans, it must be said. <laughs> yes. um, especially as an Oxford fan, I thought um, I might have to take cover. But uh, no, everyone was unbelievably friendly. Uh, good to meet, uh, good to meet some guys, and um, definitely something that I think we'll be looking to do again fairly soon. I'd have thought, and maybe not in London. Yeah, well, absolutely. We're, we're very keen to uh, do more of those next season. I, I had someone message me asking about a Bristol meetup, and I must admit, I was like, well, what if it's me, George? you know, 20 City fans and 20 Rovers fans. That that sounds a bit <laughs> and, dangerous. And probably and probably a few Swindon fans as well. Well, exactly. So we have to, we're going to have to be quite careful where, how, how we do it. Um, but no, really enjoyable. And we just, big thank you really to everyone that came. Everyone was so friendly and everyone mingled and there was no beef even between the, the Reading and the Oxford fans, etc, etc. A lot of people already very excited for next season and so are we, but we've got business to attend to. We're going to start with Villa and West Brom. Oh no, we should say just quickly, uh, quite apt, George, not to give too much away, uh, the two goal scorers on Saturday as we watched with our friends of the pod. Kimar Ruth and Chris Maguire you called them earlier two of my top three ever yeah and as I said it's just a shame James Constable didn't pop up for, for AFC filed or something he's sadly at pool town now but that made made it a treble um yeah and two great goals as well so good to see I mean 
fate had it, I think. If only I thought of that before the games and put a nice little double on, um, I'd be rich now. But uh, yeah, good to see two two Oxford legends and two of my favourite ever EFL players and ever Oxford players um, doing the goods live on Sky on Saturday. So let's talk about the game in which Kamar Roof made the difference. Derby leads first up and Leeds went to Derby and won 1-0. It's the third time they've beaten Derby this season. And, uh, you know, like all of the other games or most of the other games, not a huge amount in this. I note that Derby, not a single shot on target uh, and Leeds themselves, not exactly peppering the Derby goal, but very good for their win. And and that sends them into the second leg in a, a very, very strong position. Yeah, I thought this was probably the worst game of the lot in terms of just a spectacle. Um, but uh, having said that, I mean, we, we, we've come to expect what we saw from Derby, really. Um, a reliance on, on trying to get certain players into the game was Tom Lawrence, who I think had the kind of the, the most of the ball out of those attacking players. But they didn't really threaten much. Um, a, a Leeds back line, including both Stuart Dallas and Berardi. Um, you'd think with Pontus Janssen out, they'd have... That have tried to get at them, especially at home, but it didn't really prove to be the case. Um, I don't think that Leeds were particularly good either. They, I mean, they were the better team, um, and the moment of quality for the goal was absolutely sublime. I think, despite the you know the Maguire volley probably being the one that people will remember from this round of fixtures, I'd say that was probably the goal of the weekend. Certainly, the um, assist in the, in the playoff games. Well, that's what makes it. Yeah. Um, and and we've given Jack Harrison a lot of grief over the last uh, few months, yeah. and both a touch. They kind of flick touch out wide um, to set up the pre-assist and the ball in. I mean, how not only not how has he seen that ball, but to pull it off a kind of forty-five yard raking cross uh, from deep along the ground, curving around the outstretched outstretched defenders and meeting Kamar Roof kind of about twelve yards out towards the back post uh, for him to slot into the bottom left. Fantastic goal, and it was just a moment of quality that really sums up Leeds, where when they're at their flowing best, when they are playing their one-touch football in their build-up play. Um, and just how important it is having roof up top. It was um, it was a sign of, of, of things to come. And it was, you know, if you're Dean Smith watching that, then uh, I think alarm bells start ringing because there's very, very little you can do with that kind of quality. It's weird because a lot of people uh, talked beforehand about the fact that Derby would have all of the momentum heading into this one, George. But it <laughs> didn't really play out like that. They were, they were desperately um, poor, really, in possession. It's one thing having talented players in the final third of the pitch, but they, they were desperately trying to progress the ball to them in, 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 a, in a way that got them in good positions without them having to just do it all themselves individually. And they didn't really succeed. So I suppose credit to Leeds uh, for their performance out of possession. And uh, there's, there's always a lot of talk about how nice they are to watch Leeds when they play well uh, in an attacking sense, both uh, in their passing, but also in the pace of their attack. But, uh, you know, early on in the season when they were top of the league around Christmas time, uh, Probably the key feature of their game in reality was how good they were defensively, how good they were out of possession and, and the both the energy that they show in pressing the ball, but also in their structure, in their defensive structure, uh, limiting uh, the opposition to chances, which is something they did very well all season. And only in the last few weeks did we see them uh, struggle a little bit uh, in, in transition defensively, hit, being hit on the counter-attack. And that didn't really come to pass. There was one moment of real quality from Harry Wilson playing a, a, a short through ball to Bogle uh, and Bogle went down under a challenge from Harrison it, it looked like a penalty in real time uh, and if I'm honest after 20 replays I still don't really know whether <laughs> whether Bogle's hand in the back of Harrison you know was strong enough to, to merit that being a foul and for Harrison to have 
to have been so off balance. Uh, and then it's very hard to tell how much, if any, contact Harrison had on Bogle. So uh, I don't really know what to say about that one. But I, I feel like when we're, when we're talking only about a few games, we do have to mention the talking points. And that, that was one of them. What did you think of that one? Yeah, I, th- I think exactly as you say, it looked in real time like it was going to be a pen. And then the more you see it, the more the more that opinion changes. And, and the fact that it was pretty much the only sniff at Derby, it means pretty Derby's most um, dangerous moment. Uh, says a lot. I, th- I think quite an interesting uh, aspect to this game was that Frank Lampard certainly sent out this Derby team to, to hassle and to press Leeds. Um, Leeds only completed, I think, 313 passes in the game with just a 73.6% pass completion rate, which for an attacking team like that um, and a, a very possession-heavy team is very unlike them. Um, if you're looking at players that we normally see get a lot of the ball, Pablo, just the 33 passes completed of 44. So they really did kind of negate his impact in, in terms of possession. Um, but what I would say about Leeds, as as their goal scored, is that not only are they dangerous in possession, but I think they're almost more dangerous out of it. They're so good at playing with space ahead of them. They're so good at breaking quickly and playing out of tight spaces. So I don't know if that was necessarily a very good idea from, from Frank Lampard. I think that the way that Derby set up with their attacking prowess and, and, and with their kind of solid defence, I think maybe relinquishing a bit of possession, dropping off a bit and trying to hit leads on the break would have been a better tactic. But um, yeah, it was a pretty frenetic game in total. And it'll be just be interesting to see if, if Lampard going into the away leg chasing the game um, will operate a similar a, a similar tactic or if, if they'll just drop off a bit. Yeah, old boy Dave Nugent looking really quite rusty, old. to be honest. Um, I noted it when he played against West Brom on final day of the season. I mean he's lost a few yards of pace or he's not fit enough to, to sort of be in top condition. Um, and it's it's quite difficult to watch. You do wonder, um, you know, what has happened with Jack Marriott and why he is not getting more of a chance at this stage of the season. And obviously we are not the ones who have worked with him and with Nugent day in, day out. But Lampard certainly going with Nugent and, you know, for, to, to, to my eyes, especially that hasn't paid off uh, at this stage. Um, yeah, I, I, I should be the one really to say um, a quick word about Jack Harrison's left foot because uh, I've definitely criticised him specifically. I mean, not even sure if I've criticised him necessarily. I've just questioned, I guess, at times whether he is making enough of an impact uh, for this Leeds team to merit being a starter in a, in a title-challenging team. So um, what what can't be argued is that when he gets a bit of space with that left foot, he does have immense quality, technical quality. And we saw that scoring a late goal against Millwall earlier in the season uh, and this time around picking out Roof with a fantastic cross. And and good to see a lead striker finishing a chance well. Um, he did have another chance not not long after, the second best chance of the game for Roof. Um, and it just not quite hit with enough power. Roof's made a, a, a good save there. And Leeds heading into that game in a very strong position, it, it must be said. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, Aston Villa, I suppose, uh, it was not necessarily necessarily how we thought this one was going to go but Villa did beat West Brom 2-1 at Villa Park uh, this was a Saturday lunchtime another game where we are going to have to touch on on refereeing decisions of course um, but just talk about the, the game outside of that in general uh, the, the whole picture of this match and the, and its whole sort of balance was shifted by one big mistake from Glenn Whelan early on and a very well taken goal from Dwight Gale and that really did change the game to a, to a huge extent didn't it yeah massively um, I think the, the the impact that Whelan um, had compared to the person that replaced him in, in, in Cora Hurahan who, uh, who came on and scored an absolute yeah, a fantastic left footed strike from outside the area to level the game after Whelan had made his mistake 
was fairly telling and and it was interesting to hear Dean Smith asked after the game if that was a tactical masterstroke of his to bring him on whereas I think the reality was it was just the wrong team selection um, at Villa Park I think you had to had to start with with Hurahan who now Whelan's obviously been very competent this season he's a, he's normally a, a better ball player than I think he gets credit for but uh, but Hurahan's had an unbelievable six months he offers you something a bit different he offers you enough of a threat that it's going to mean that people like Grealish can find more space further forwards. So uh, that was a bit of a turning point. I thought I thought Villa were terrible first half, mm. um, really really poor. I think I think I thought Grealish was as bad as I've seen him really in that first forty five minutes. Um, obviously, he ended up having the impact in the second half with both the assists, where he managed to take out three men with him out out to the right hand side of the, of the penalty area before setting it back to Hurahan, who was in loads of space uh, before that fantastic finish, and then he won the penalty as well. So. Uh, it's, it, I'd say it's still pretty delicately poised this one, um, despite you know Villa obviously getting the important win and, and Dwight Gale being out for the second leg because um, that wasn't the Villa that I anticipated us seeing, and um, it's easy to forget that West Brom are a team who, who are pretty hard to beat at the Hawthorns, and I think they'll come out um, come out fighting even even without their star striker. I must say, and I, I agree, that Villa clearly did not play particularly well. Um, someone after the game said, well, Villa didn't deserve to win. And I do understand where that's come from. They underwhelmed comparative to, to maybe how we were previewing this game and how strong they were. Um, I don't think particularly West Brom deserved to win the game either. So I don't really know how, how, how you fall down on that one. But I mean, I do, I do want to say that it's very difficult to get through a team that is playing five at the back, three of the least, um, uh, I guess, attack-minded in their roles, uh, central midfield players that I've seen, uh, and then Rodriguez off Gale, sort of buzzing around. It's it's not easy when there's a team camped on the edge of their own box with that back five, with three central midfield players, basically denying any sort of space in central areas. And, you know, good good defensive teams as we know and as we've seen you know at the top level teams like Atletico Madrid but certainly at any level many teams are very happy to to defend balls from out wide and that was kind of Villa's problem that they had to play it out wide uh, and they weren't really getting the delivery from from either the wingers or the fullbacks in the first half but I did just want to say like you know if that if that mistake isn't made from Whelan that game looks very different um I'm not saying Villa would have scored loads of goals, but it wouldn't have looked like that. It was, at times, attack versus defence, which, you know, let's not forget West Brom finished above Villa in the league. So, I think... When you take the lead away from home in, in a playoff game, I, I think you do that. And, and, for, and for the most part, it's easy now to criticise West Brom for doing so, but until the Hurahan goal, Villa didn't get a sniff. I mean, and, and the commentators were saying, everyone was saying, you know, this Villa team is incapable of breaking down this kind of two banks of four of West Broms and then obviously it takes you know a, a low XG long shot to, to get them level and then straight away they get penalties so I, I think I, I don't you can necessarily criticise James Shan for their I, approach I'm not, not criticising him for the approach I'm I guess I'm saying it's fine but let's let's be clear like what are we expecting it's very difficult to create loads and loads and loads of chances when they've got essentially well, just a, a whole team defending. That, I guess that's what I'm saying. There are a couple of half chances for Tammy. You'd want Villa to do more. But it, I kind of think that in the end, uh, as much as you credit, and I do credit West Brom's defence for holding very strong for 70 minutes, 
Um, I guess that strategy in the end, you know, yes, it was a, a, a low expected goal chance, but when there's going to be a lot of a lot of pot shots from the edge, that sort of thing, just a whole game of attack v defence, then, you know, you are raising the expectancy of something flying in at some point, especially if you fail to close down Huran. And, and, and you know, you mentioned it, it, it made so much sense to bring on Huran, didn't it? Um, West Brom were completely leaving Whelan because he just wasn't a threat. And that was a, a, an issue. So that was always going to make a, a big difference. I guess I feel a little bit bad in terms of, you know, saying it was the, the wrong team selection. It definitely played out like that but Whelan's had a fantastic few months I suppose if if you're Dean Smith there are players to fear in in West Brom's midfield in Johansson and in Phillips and actually they weren't particularly imaginative after 20 minutes so maybe having Whelan uh, as more of a defensive minded player or stronger in the tackle didn't really it didn't really matter in the end but you can kind of see where he's coming from and I did feel uh, a bit bad for him when he made that mistake um what about all of the Penal, uh, all of the refereeing incidents. There, there are a lot of West Brom fans saying all three major decisions went Villa's way, uh, as if that, as if that means they, some of them definitely were wrong. Um, so we've got a, we've got a, a penalty on Grealish. Uh, I've, I've just read that he's not being banned for deception of a match official <laughs> by the EFL, which se- seems obvious to me. That that looked in real time and on multiple replays like a penalty to me yeah definite penalty and that's not my bias I'm sure, I'm sure some will claim um, he's obviously gone over very very easily indeed but he's absolutely done um, Kieran Gibbs and he's fooled him into um, you know, making a late tackle and, and he's won the penalty yeah, yeah so um, I mean, and what about what about Dwight Gale's red card the first one was for time wasting uh, when they were ahead, he was taking the. Uh, I didn't know he had a long throw on him. By the way, that was very exciting. He can get. <laughs> he, he can really give it some right, right to the penalty spot, which is a, a nice weapon. Um, but he was booked for time wasting when out wide taking a throw, and then of course uh, made a foul on Grealish that wasn't uh, given as a second yellow. It was probably correct, but one too many when he slid in to to try and score a ball that flashed across the six yard box, but steer claimed it and that and then Gale went in on him did, did you see that as fairly clear cut yes I mean there's basically a few things I take exception to um firstly uh, a lot of people saying that because it's a playoff second leg he so first like he had to go for that um first kind of myth buster it just doesn't make a difference <laughs> what game they're playing in uh, his right to go for a ball secondly as with you know a lot of tackles of course he had every right to go for that he had to go for that but just like if I have every right to, to slide tackle you and you nick the ball away from me and I go through your leg, um, it's a foul. Uh, and thirdly, people saying he didn't touch Steer. Um, again, I think that's just wishful thinking. I think that's people watching watching something and making up their mind before they're actually choosing, before they're actually seeing what's going on in front of them. These games um, chuck he, up he, a lot of emotions, George, a lot of emotions. He, he, he quite clearly does does catch his leg. And, and, I, and I do honestly think that it, it's more to do with the accumulation. I, I think that if Gale hadn't fouled anyone yet or hadn't committed an offence, um, and he was booked for that, um, uh, tap, well, that foul on Grealish in front of the dugouts, I think nobody would have batted an eyelid. Um, it was unbelievably late, and he had no intention to play the ball, and he basically fouled him with his whole body. So, um, I think if he hadn't been booked for time wasting already, that would have been a first yellow. The fact he's already been booked, I'm pretty sure the referee would have said to him there, then and there, you know, that's your lot anymore and, and, you're, and you're out and and even though he had every right to do it and even though he was second best and late to it um 
that doesn't and the rhetoric around you know him having to go for it and his manager would have been livid if he didn't go for it it just doesn't matter it's a foul it's another foul and uh, and it had to be a, uh, another yellow card and abraham I mean, he he, he didn't really seem to protest after the curl came out he was like yeah fair enough right i'm off yeah well it's a it's a huge blow for them heading into the semi-final the last one was a penalty shout from abraham uh, fouling holgate now I've kind of flip-flop on this one as well, which I guess sums up where, you know, if I suppose as, as a neutral, sometimes it's difficult to feel as strongly either way as, as fans do and, and what you see on social media. But certainly there was a lot of anger about this one and I can understand that. Um, there was a moment where I thought Holgate might have kind of already been going down by the time Abraham made contact and wasn't necessarily challenging for the ball. But actually, I do think Abraham was essentially leading with his arm and... and kind of shoving his opponent before heading the ball away. So I, I do think that that could have, maybe should have been yeah. given. Um, and that, you know, that would have been a, a key moment. So I suppose yeah, in, in I, that sense. I'd agree. I think the two things there, I mean, the, the one was it, was it was Abraham who skied the ball up in the air. And I think that was pretty telling in his reaction. So I think he was absolutely terrified that it was going to be his fault if they um, if they scored. But I mean, the only thing, and in real time, I definitely thought it was a penalty. And then in the replays, I wasn't so sure. The only, the only thing that... Uh, that slightly put me off is the angle where the ref's angle where, where Holgate is literally looking at the ref as it's going on kind of pleading with him and you just think if if he stands up and actually is, is trying to head the ball and he's got any intention of playing the ball whatsoever he probably does still get fouled and it probably is a foul but it's just mm. the way that he almost sets up his body to, to be clattered no but, I mean, yeah. but I mean you could have no complaints at all if you're a Villa fan and that was given well Old school listeners to the podcast will remember that when Conor Hurahan was playing for Barnsley, he was actually the lock screen on my phone for a while. Such was <laughs> yeah. my love for him. So that was a, a lovely moment. You had your Roof and Maguire goals and I had my uh, Conor Hurahan goal. Uh, Villa go into the, the second leg now, strong favourites to progress. How do you think the second leg will look now and how do you think Shan should go about this? I mean, they, they clearly need to do more. They clearly... But, but of course, there's a chance that they overcommit. And it's hard to imagine Villa playing the same as West Brom did uh, when trying to hold on to a lead. Yeah, it's really hard to know how the game's going to go because they are two teams who, who play very contrasting styles of play. We've seen West Brom's best performances this season have come when they haven't been in control of possession. Very interesting stat at the beginning of the Sky Sports coverage where they showed that when Chris Brunt plays, they normally enjoy more possession. Maybe that says more about Chris Brunt than uh, than or something else about Chris Brunt than, than the uh, than the commentators were trying to say. Um, maybe he's not quite the player they need in that position. But um, but yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing is that normally Villa would like to play on the front foot. Normally West Brom would like to be um, playing a little bit deeper and, try, and trying to hit, hit them on the break. But here, because the impetus is with um, is on West Brom to go and attack. Is it a case of sticking to a game plan, soaking up pressure, and, and trying to break late, or do they have to? have to put the foot down. I have a feeling Villa will still have more of the ball. It'll probably be a little bit uh, deeper with a bit um, less in- attacking intent um, With as the game going on, West Brom having to slightly change their tactics and, and try and get on the front foot. But I, I, I fear for West Brom that if, Villa, if they do do that, then Villa will be in a position with Al Ghazi, uh, with Grealish, with McGinn, with Tammy Abraham, where they will be very, very dangerous if they leave any space in behind. So... What, what, a bit of a head scratcher for, for James Shan, really. Yeah, and what's very clear, I think, is that for West Brom to progress, to turn this one around, there are going to have to be some performances from some players who have not turned in performances 
uh, to the level that, that you would hope for, perhaps even expect, given some of the names involved in that squad. There are people that will have to step up in the absence of Dwight Gale uh, in, in order, to, in order to, to keep their season going. So we hope to see some better performances from some of those West Brom players. In League One, Sunderland beat Portsmouth 1-0. Uh, plenty of controversy in this one, an absolutely belting goal as well. Uh, in terms of the result, no real complaints. Sunderland, the better side here, I guess, uh, similar in some ways to the Leeds-Derby game in that they didn't necessarily carve Pompey open for hundreds of chances, but certainly, you know, in control uh, and, the, and the better side here heading to Fratton Park, 1-0 up. Um, but, you know, it's it's set up tantalisingly for the second leg. How did how did you see this one at the time? Um, yeah, I thought Sunderland looked impressive. They were, they, uh, I was concerned about the whole, you know, the, the, the mentality of the fans going into the game and, and the club just seeming a little bit down. Um, not selling out the Stadium of Light as well was a, was a huge surprise to me, given their fan base. But I think it just summed up the disappointment of the fan base. They weren't able to get over the line. Um, but... The performance was was anything but. It was full of full of quality, full of effort, and uh, and that goal from Maguire was uh, was an absolute wonder hit. Um, I was surprised that he didn't start. I was surprised they went for at home, um, went for for Max Power in behind uh, Charlie Wyke. Um, but if, yeah, you could got to give the massive credit for it. I was surprised that uh, Portsmouth didn't cause them more problems, given the defensive frailties we've seen Sunderland have recently. Very few clean sheets. Um, but they pose him little trouble at all. So going to the game, I, mean, I think the game at Fratton Park is going to have to be a lot more open. And, and you know, with Portsmouth having about seven strikers in the squad, um, you've got to think they're going to throw the kitchen sink at it. So I could see there being a quite a high-scoring affair on Thursday evening. Um, but the way that a you know the, the impact that Maguire had, then also just the afters as well with with Burgess um, seemingly. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, I mean, you you, you as Everyone listening to the pod know are quite the Chris Maguire fan. When he was at Oxford, uh, the club had an amazing few years and he was the big man for the big occasion there and then, wasn't he? And that played out in this game in the two most Chris Maguire way- ways, scoring yeah. a fantastic goal, showing technique well above League One level. Uh, and then the afters as well. Just just talk me through that. No surprise and some delight, I imagine, when you saw uh, his afters with uh, with Burgess and, and the fact that he's got everyone on strings as they say yeah I mean I'm just terrified one day I'm going to be on the receiving end of it but he always seems to turn it down a bit against, against Oxford and play terribly but um, he it's what I tweeted about earlier if, if Portsmouth give him any extra treatment if they look to kick him if they look to get him wound up he will completely do one over you there's just no out shit housing the biggest shit house of them all and uh, and for that reason, they, they've got to ignore it. They can't rise to it because he'll run rings around you. He'll get fouled all day. He'll dive. He'll probably get you sent off and he'll probably win the tie. This is his absolute bread and butter. And the way that you've seen Portsmouth fans on social media in the last few days, the way their players react to the final whistle, it feels like they are going out there on Thursday just to beat him. And that is their first mistake because they've got to keep their heads here. If, if they ignore him, if they don't give him any credit, that's when he'll uh, he'll he'll start to struggle. So that's my my scouting advice for Kenny Jacket if he's listening. Um, but I have a feeling that's not going to happen. And you know, there's a bit of history as well between uh, between Nathan Thompson and um, and Chris Maguire when uh, at the county ground, Chris Maguire went over to to Nathan Thompson with seven fingers stuck up and then uh, made the crying face with his hands mm. in in Thompson's face. Uh, and 
um, the way that Thompson reacted to the uh, to the Sunderland fans as well. It just feels like there's a lot of needle here. Yeah, so and, they've um, played I, four times now. Uh, you know, this fifth game is going to be the tastiest of the lot. I've seen yeah. I've seen some good plotting on on uh, online as well. Portsmouth fans seem to be trying to recreate some sort of Galatasaray esque um, uh, sort of reception and atmosphere, which uh, which I, I hope is as good as as it seems like it's going to be because that's going to be an amazing game. I mean, what I would say, you mentioned a tip for Kenny Jacket. Obviously, don't rise to Maguire. Also, just. Just give, just, just stand on his right foot. Just show him left. Just show him out mm. wide. That's fine. And don't leave him alone on the edge of the box because, uh, it, you know, his finishing from, from that range is very, very good. Another refereeing decision that we can mention and we can say definitively was wrong was the decision to send off Ozturk, the Sunderland defender, with about 20, 25 minutes to go. Uh, he did get to the ball second with Evans running clear, but Evans was running away from goal. I certainly felt like... This was definitely a foul and definitely not a red card for denial of a clear goal-scoring opportunity. So the right thing to do to overturn that and and for Ozturk to be available for the second leg. For Sunderland fans, the question is, should we have been able to play for 20 minutes with, with 10 men? That might have stopped us from scoring a second goal that could have killed this tie-off. So not ideal for them. Looking ahead to the second leg, though, Sunderland have the goal... I'm assuming you're expecting a, a much more impressive Pompey f- performance and for this one not to be maybe as, as over in your head as, as Derby leads. Obviously, you, you can't... Really... No, I think Sunderland are definitely the more likely team to go through now. Um, they've gone in that 90 minutes, it may have just been a 1-0 win, but they've gone from a club and a team who were down on confidence, who were in a bad run of form, who the, the fans had slightly left them, to now being one completely buoyant. Um, able to kind of almost strutting now after that result. You saw the fans' reaction in the final whistle. You saw the players' reaction. They're going to be absolutely buzzing for Thursday. And I think that you know the, the more of an atmosphere the, the Pompey fans create at Fratton, the more they're going to love it. They're going to absolutely revel in that role. Um, whereas Portsmouth coming into that game as the favourites in, in the tie just didn't show up at all. Didn't break down a, a defence that they've managed to do so in the past. Um, you know they, they have they had that. Uh, the, the edge on them given the, what happened at Wembley and what's happened in the league and that's completely gone as well so even though I've had um, well published doubts about the Sunderland team I think going into that game uh, not only do I fancy Sunderland to go through but I think I also fancy them to to, to at least get a draw I think that the, well, the not necessarily the momentum but just the, the shift of balance has been massively in their favour 3-2 Pompey for me. We're heading to penalties and you heard it here first. I cannot wait for that game. I'm sure, I'm sure Mags would love that. <laughs> let's uh, let's finish this uh, League One part talking about Donny 1 and Charlton 2. Uh, this one was on Sunday lunchtime and it was a good game. It was a good game. Doncaster started well in this one. Um, at the same time, the final result, really not ideal for them. We spoke about, you said specifically on the preview show, the key here is Doncaster's home form and they have to do well at home because Charlton's home form versus Donny away form is a massive mismatch. So for Doncaster, it was just a just a really poor few minutes defensively, wasn't it? I mean, first they, they switched off calling for offside um, when the ball had come off Butler, their defender's head uh, and a brave finish from Lyle Taylor. And then just two minutes later, I mean, it was a real breakdown from the Doncaster defence. Uh, and a poor bit of goalkeeping from Morosi to, to sort of uh, unable to keep Aribo's fairly tame strike out. Uh, and that was 2-0 still in the first half at that time. Should say that Morosi kind of made up for it later with a couple of good saves. But as 
the ties go that are still going, this one looks the most done. Yeah, I mean, Morosi had a shocking couple of minutes. There's also him that kept the ball on. Taylor initially putting his effort wide, but he was you can't kind of blame him for that. <laughs> just no, 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 not blaming him, but he must must have thought to himself, you know, in a similar way, the Aribo shot I think was probably going wide um, before he diverted it in. So just one of those kind of hellish couple, uh, couple of minutes for for him. But uh, as you say, I mean, when the goal went in, there was nothing much between the two teams. Um, Doncaster hit the woodwork as well. Um, early on at nil-nil. And whilst I, I do agree, and obviously Charlton are in a fantastic position now, having won the away leg, um, that late goal for, for Doncaster is huge. Um, and it will be, you know, the rankle with every single member of that Charlton team and backroom staff that they, that they let that goal go in. And it'll give every single member of the Doncaster fans and team faith that they can go there. And all they have to make up is a one-goal deficit, even though it's away from home. And then they're still in the tie. And they're level in the tie. So, um, yeah, as a Charlton backer, I was frustrated to see that go in. I, I don't think we can call this one done. Of all the ties, it probably is the closest to being so. Um, but I think Doncaster showed enough attacking intent and an attacking prowess that, I mean, they're going to have to go for it on, on, on uh, in this game on Wednesday night. And, and it's, it's on Friday, Friday night. And... Uh, and given the, the fact they're going to have to lay down some kind of marker to, to Charlton, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they're going to pose them problems. Um, but it's just whether or not they can restore that deficit, I don't know. Yeah, absolute ping from uh, Danny Andrew, the left back that hit the bar. Um, one of the best long-range free kick takers in League One this season. And if that's not a niche category, uh, <laughs> I don't know what is. And Marcus Madison probably have something to say about that, but. We've seen Andrew score a few, and that was an absolutely sensational strike. Very unlucky that that didn't go in. A fantastic leap from Matty Blair um, to, to climb highest and nod home that late goal. It does set it up so nicely, doesn't it? Doncaster, if they can get the first goal, who knows? If Charlton get the first goal, then, then you'd think that that one might peter out somewhat. But uh, that, yeah. was, you know, that was a really entertaining game on Sunday lunchtime. And I, I suppose, despite it being the one that we think is the most done and that's not to say that it is but with the away team winning um, and and heading back with such a disparity between Charlton's home form and Donny's away form even with that this was not necessarily a one-sided game and I think you know we've we've really enjoyed the first legs uh, in the championship and league one we're now going to talk about what happened in league two we've got some finalists and George the first finalist to book their place at Wembley was a team from South Wales. It's Mike Flynn's Miracle Exiles. They beat Mansfield on penalties at Mansfield. And, well, let's sort of analyse both games. The first game, Mansfield took the lead with a really nice counter-attack. Fantastic finish from CJ Hamilton. And then it kind of felt like from that point on, they just stopped playing. Another disappointing performance from a Mansfield point of view to end this season, which had so much hope about four months ago. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, the, the important thing to say here is that I don't think if Manfield had won the game last night, I don't think you could have said they didn't deserve it. Uh, they had the chances to win the game. Um, they absolutely dominated the first half an hour of the first leg. Um, that's not to say that they were unlucky to go out. It's just that they can blame just, just wayward finishing, really. CJ Hamilton, you mentioned Tyler Walker missed a couple of very, very good chances as well. Um, he had the best chance in extra time, the best chance late in, in the game. Do you not think Newport um, have, have a case to say they, they somewhat dominated that game, the second leg? 
I would say they dominated the first half, absolutely. I think the second half, uh, Mansfield definitely shaded. I think Mansfield looked like the more likely team to win in extra time as well. Um, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a surprise that they're the home team. And I think that first half performance was very poor. But um, as I say, if, if Walker or Hamilton finish one of those chances, I think we're, we're sitting here talking about a, a Mansfield team who weren't particularly impressive but deserved their place in the final. Now, that's not to say, again, that Newport didn't. It was a very, very tight game. Well, I mean, it was a tight game and they drew nil-nil, but it was a game where both teams had chances to score two or three or four goals. I think it was 15 shots each um, in normal time or, or something to that effect. So a really, really open game, um, a nil-nil draw that should never have been nil-nil. Two keepers who come out of the tie, um, if it's probably as, as, as each team's best player, I would say certainly Conrad Logan was absolutely superb. Um uh, over the both over both the legs. I'm afraid, uh, however, that Conrad Logan did that thing that I I would probably do if I was a goalkeeper in a penalty shootout, trying to put off. I can't remember which taker it was. I but really enjoyed it. Doing a lot of shouting, <laughs> doing a lot of bar wobbling. Again, it, it, all acceptable it, it, it stuff. I'm afraid what's not acceptable is then guessing the right way and, and limp wristing it into the uh, into the side yeah, netting. You end up looking that uh, was poor. You end up looking a bit stupid. I, I mean, Joe Day is for many people Newport's most important player, so it was fairly apt that he made a fantastic save in the shootout, the only penalty that was missed. Um, but from a Newport perspective, what what do you, you know? How did you make of their performance? It was it was it was kind of everything that we expected. They they produced two pretty Newport performances um, and, and made things fairly uncomfortable for Mansfield without at any stage, you know, well, I mean, they obviously had a lot of chances, but I think in the preview, we talked about how they, they all their games are kind of tight. They're always, they're always on a knife edge and, and they're quite comfortable in that scenario. So as a prospect heading to Wembley, how excited are you about Mike Flynn's miracle army? Really excited. Um, and I think they are too. Um, I think maybe the reason why you see these games being tight is there isn't they're, they're unbelievably well organised and well drilled and, and very fit, which you have to say, given how many play, games they played. I mean, they didn't really look leggy um, in, in the affairs, although I'm, it, I must point out that in both games, actually in the, in the first game, they grew into it in the, in, in the game last night. Um, they started very fast and slowly. Um, Mansfield turned the screw. But I think there's just a lack of maybe individual quality, which is no criticism. It's more just about the team as a unit. Um, you know, their, their most effective player outfield, I'd say, over the two legs is probably Jamil Matt, who we know isn't necessarily a world beater at League Two level. When he was isolated in the second half, that's when Mansfield seemed to be able to get their foot on the ball more. Whereas when the ball was played up to him early, he was able to dominate the centre backs very easily, which, given he was playing against Christian Pierce, is, is some feat. Um, so at, at Wembley, I mean, we've said before that Mike Flynn's obviously very good at getting them set up as a cup team. Um, not just this season, but we've seen that in the past. He's an unbelievable motivator as well. So, I mean, Nick Goff spoke on our preview show about being concerned about their celebrations, maybe meaning that they thought the job was done. I mean, that clearly wasn't the case. They were bang up for both games. Yeah, so a huge again after yesterday's results. So I'd expect them to be to turn up at Wembley, whether or not they've got the quality to beat the other finalists who I make is, is pretty strong favourites uh, for the game. I'm not so sure. OK, we're going to get on to that in one sec. We just needed to shout out a man that we really enjoyed during that penalty shootout. That was Regan Poole. Uh, Poole is a... Well, he came through the Newport youth system and he was poached by United, uh, Manchester United, a couple of years ago. And it's one of those ones where he's he's done some time in the United Reserves. He's also done a few loans now back at League Two level. I think he's out of contract in the summer and, and you'd expect he'd be dropping down to League One 
probably, maybe League Two, but there'll be cert certainly plenty of people trying to get hold of him. It's so nice that he's back at Newport and his penalty w was amazing. Still such a young player and a centre-back as well, but to step forward with such confidence to, to take a perfect penalty. And then I just love the way that, I just love the way that he, he walked back to his teammates. He was clearly you know, he, he was clearly geeing them up. And, and I think that, you know, that's quite important. That does go quite a long way. Christian Pierce was trying to do the same on the Mansfield side of things, but it might be that these players just have a slightly less, less passionate demeanour and that's not necessarily a terrible thing. But, you know, it didn't seem like they had quite the same sort of spirit uh, in that penalty shootout. But of course, uh, such fine margins. You're right, Newport will be underdogs in the final because they're going to be playing against a team looking to win their second playoff final in a row and that is Tranmere Rovers one of Newport or Tranmere will be playing in League One last season Tranmere beat Forest Green 2-1 over two legs early on in the second leg their 1-0 lead was cancelled out with a header from a set piece from Mills but a fantastic goal from Norwood uh, and, then, and then some very resolute defending saw them win the tie and George you know very, very deserved winners of this playoff semi-final. Yeah, I was unbelievably impressed them tonight. Um, I thought they were absolutely brilliant, given the game state as well, falling behind early, having to weather a little bit of a storm in the first five or ten minutes. They then just took complete control of the game, and it wasn't panicked. Even at 1-0 down, they, they kept the ball in, in advanced areas, moved very quickly. Um, Norwood led the line unbelievably well, and what a finish. I mean, if a goal kind of personifies a player, I reckon... Uh, a, a knockdown, falling to him and him sweeping into the bottom left, holding off the defenders, pretty much it. Um, it was class. And um, then shushing a, the fans. Uh, exactly. And having, you know, the fans who, who cheered his name for four years. Um, and I said in, in the previews, if, if it was you know, two of the best strikers in League Two in Deutsch and Norwood, who would you rather have in your ranks? It has to be Norwood. And, and he proved over the two legs that he is just that perfect target man for this kind of a, an occasion. And I cannot wait to see him at Wembley because... I think he'll rise to the challenge. Yeah, you called that very, very well. Fantastic goal from Norwood. Not the best goal that Tranmere scored in the tie. In the first leg, Ollie Banks strode forward and he's such a, uh, a, a languid midfielder, isn't he, that he just sort of lolloped forward and absolutely spanked one uh, in off the bar. Bit of goal line technology being used in, uh, in League Two, which is not something that you see during the regular season, but the ref had one of those watches on, didn't he? So two fantastic goals from Tranmere, but sensational at the back today, uh, especially Manny Month and Sid Nelson. They really did defend exceptionally well. At the same time, there was no contest between Deutsch and Norwood uh, over the two legs. Norwood full of energy, even out of possession, pressing, and Deutsch just not quite offering quite the same presence, either with or without the ball. At the same time, I felt really disappointed in this, in this Forest Green performance, and I, I don't want to just single out Deutsch. Um, they they struck me as a team just not comfortable chasing a game at all. Um, and I noted the other day, experimental 3-6-1s uh, end of season stuff included a, a piece on how often each team had been winning, drawing or losing in their games this season. And Forest Green spent the, the division's smallest share of time in a losing position. So they didn't have much practice at being behind. And it really showed, I mean... They, they they consistently failed to get any numbers around Deutsch. Their their whole build-up play is, you know, it's a style that, that we like and that we champion at times, trying to build on the deck, trying to build through a team rather than just going straight, lumping it into the box. But I just never really felt like they that they got particularly close. And look, if, if you're not set up to lump it, then that's fine and you shouldn't 
you know, they played a whole season. They shouldn't just expect to to do that just because of, of the situation. But I think the problem is, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but when it doesn't come off and you end up only having a handful of, of half chances or pot-shotted efforts at goal, I think as a fan and, and as a viewer as well, for us, you, you know, I was just left feeling like they hadn't quite given everything. Um, that was kind of the feeling that I got, which is a, a bit of a shame because it's, it's a team that we've enjoyed watching this season. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it, I don't know whether it was circumstance or, or just the occasion, but but nothing really went, went right for them. And, you know, getting that 1-0, keeping it to 1-0 on the first leg was, was a huge achievement in itself. But for whatever reason, today after taking the lead, they couldn't really follow it up. Um, but I've got no doubt that this is a team who, if they can keep key players, will, will, be, will be up and around there next season. And if they don't, if they lose the likes of Brown and Doidge again, um, you'd have to think that they're going to uh, invest pretty wisely and get in some good players, some good young players to take them forward next season. Yeah, Reese Brown, not not with the greatest performance with plenty of people would have been watching. There are a couple of nice moments and he looked tidy on the ball. I think part of the problem is is basically expecting him to be the man to pick the ball up at the base of midfield from the defenders uh, to start the attack and also somehow to be the one, you know, picking up the ball in order to play the last pass as well. It, it's, it's very, very difficult that sort of patient passing um, style, it's, it's important for, it's difficult rather for him to have uh, as big an impact, I think, as he would have needed to, um, to win this game for Forest Green. So a few, a few disappointing performances in there. I thought Williams looked lively when he came on compared to Mondal and they did need someone to give a bit of spark. It looked like he was going to do that, but ultimately no dice. So it's the Tranmere fans singing tequila and heading to Wembley to play against Newport County. That is our first confirmed playoff final. We're so excited about that. Uh, and we are also buzzing for the second legs of the playoff semi-finals in League One and in the Championship. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at NTT20Pod um, for, well, for notes, for opinions, for wittiness, all the good stuff. Um, and, uh, and make sure you're following at George Ellick and at the Makalele role as well. Thank you very much for listening to this one, guys. And we'll speak again soon.